you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I will pay someone a dollar to get me a glass of water uh, in, the next, in the next few minutes. <laughs> Thanks. One of the books that I had to read in my high school American Lit class was Mark Twain's novel, Huckleberry Finn. And in one part of that book, Huck is telling his literary counterpart, Mark, uh, Tom Sawyer, rather, uh, about life with the widow Douglas. And he's just going on and on about how he's really not all that happy with it. And he comes to one part where he's complaining about church. And here's what he says. I got to go to church and sweat and sweat. I hate them ornery sermons. I can't catch a fly in there. I can't chaw. I got to wear shoes all Sunday. And he goes on to talk about one of his most woeful experiences at church, saying, Two of the toughest hours I ever did spend was listening to a Presbyterian minister drone on about pre-4 destination. Now, I find great humor in that statement. But it's okay to laugh. And, uh, and I find uh, great truth in it as well. Because from what Twain wrote in other places, I think that surely he is expressing his own views about church through the mouth of Huck Finn. And from what I have heard from Christians over the years, I think many might feel the same way. It's why there is, it's a rarity to hear a sermon on uh, anything coming close to election or predestination. Some Christians balk at the talk of it because it can be hard to understand and at first it strikes us as being unfair. But understand the Bible never presents election to be anything like that. The Bible does not ever present the ideas of election and predestination to be discouraging or to be necessarily confusing, but always as a means of encouragement, comfort, and assurance of God's love for us. Some of you, though, may not know what the doctrine of election is, or maybe you've heard it defined differently than what I will define it as this morning. So let me define it for you simply. I'm taking this definition from J.I. Packer, and his, uh, which I find to be very uh, short, succinct, and helpful. Thank you very much. He says simply this, The biblical doctrine of election is that before creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom He would redeem, bring to faith, justify, and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. I think that is a fine definition, but the question is whether or not it's a biblical definition. Because some will say that that's, that's not a biblical definition. I know I was listening to one, one minister and he said that he was with his, um, staying with his uh, grandmother, dear sweet grandmother, a very godly woman, and uh, they were reading through the passage that we're going to read this morning. And, and she kind of paused and said, Now, Lingen, you need to understand that, uh, that, as, uh, that as Baptists, we don't believe in predestination. And he said, Well, but Grandma, the, the word is there in the text. And she says, honey, you need to understand we're Baptists. We don't believe in predestination. And he said, but, but, but Grandma, it's, it, the word is there. It's, it's right there in the text. And she says, Legan, we're Baptists. We don't believe in predestination. Now, maybe some of you are here thinking that this morning, but, but Legan Duncan's argument is still right. The word is in the text that we're going to look at. So you have, to, you have to think something about the word. You have to think about something in terms of its meaning. The question is, what do you think about it? Last week we started looking at the glories of the salvation that God has given to us, the spiritual blessings that He has poured out to us in Christ. And so this is, frankly, the beginning because this is where the blessings start. And what I hope you will see this morning as we look through this passage that we're going to look at is that 
Election is never meant to be some theological curiosity. It's never meant to be a stumbling block. It is simply there to be an extraordinary encouragement for you to understand the great love with which God loved us before there was even time. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to follow along with me as we look at Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, verses 3 through 14, although we're going to be only be looking at, uh, in terms of the exposition, 3 through 6. But I want us to get the, the larger picture of what Paul is saying here. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be homely, holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved." In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." Well, as we look at and think about these, these verses, these uh, verses 3 through 14 here, what we see is, frankly, one long sentence in the original. Paul's mind has rested on the salvation that God has given to us, His grace towards sinners, including Himself. And what comes tumbling out, phrase after phrase, is 202 words of joyous praise to God that cannot even stop to take a breath. It's all what, now if I were to write something like that in college or high school, I'd be an ex's. No good. But for Paul, uh, it's, it, it's an amazing expression of praise to God for the salvation he's given to us. And he shows that it's a Trinitarian salvation. That is to say that every person of the triune God is working together towards the salvation of sinners. In verses 3 through 6, it is shown that the Father is the one who plans salvation. In verses 7 through 12, the Son secures salvation according to the plan of the Father. And in verses 13 through 14, the Spirit applies salvation, salvation that was won, secured by the Son according to the plan of the Father. And this morning, what we want to do is to zero in on those first verses that speak of the Father's plan. And what I hope we will see is the glorious, gracious, according to Paul, praiseworthy doctrine of election. Again, he starts and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul says that every believer has been blessed with every spiritual blessing available in Christ. And for this, God the Father is to be praised. And part of that for which we are to praise God for is our election. And so as we seek to understand it, the first thing we need to see is the basis of for election, the basis for election. What is the basis for God's election of His people? Well, the first thing is two things there. And the first is simply God's choice. God's choice. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even, Paul says, verse 4, as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God chose those whom He would elect to be the recipients of His blessings of salvation in Christ. But why does He choose? 
on, on what basis does God make his choice? This is a key question because many will say something like this. God looked down to the quarters of time and he saw who would have faith in Christ, who would respond to the gospel. And based upon their choice of him, he then would choose them. So ultimately, God's choice in salvation becomes contingent upon our choice in hearing the gospel and choosing to follow Christ. So there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, it forgets the effects of the fall. You remember last week we saw Adam and Eve's fall into sin, the, the damaging, uh, the lasting consequences that that brought to us. And part of that uh, consequences was that sinfulness has stained every part of our being. It's not like just part of us has been affected by sin and part of us remains neutral, unaffected by sin. No, he has shown us, the Bible says that our thinking, our desires, our actions, everything has been corrupted by sin. And so the Bible pictures us as spiritually dead. Therefore, it is impossible for God to look forward and see who would choose him because left to ourselves, we would never choose him. We would never choose him. Isn't it the old hymn that we sing? God, I love you because you first loved me. You see, there is, a, there is a, an, an action that is required to awaken us to the spiritual reality of who God is so that we can in turn trust in God. But secondly, and more importantly, that's simply not what the Bible teaches about election. Notice what Paul says. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul is saying that God's choice took place, God's electing choice took place before he had created anything. Before he had created a world, before he created the, the, the universe, before light and darkness, before angels, before anything at all, God made a choice to save. In other words, Paul is saying God's choice in election was based not on anything we had done or would do, but on his choice alone. This is the argument he makes elsewhere in Romans chapter 9. He reminds his readers that contrary to the norm, the younger of Isaac's sons was chosen by God to carry the covenant promises. Normally, the oldest son would have the biggest inheritance. Normally, the firstborn would be the one that would have the biggest slice of the pie. And yet God said, no, that's not going to be the case. The younger will be the one who receives the covenant the promises. So in Romans 9, in verse 10, he says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet been born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, East Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God says, you need to understand that my covenant promises have nothing to do with you, but everything to do with me. I am making the choice to save you, despite the fact that you have not earned it, nor do you deserve it. And Paul makes this argument not because he's come up with this idea of election, but because it's the totality of the testimony of Scripture. Election is not just in the Old Testament. It's throughout the Scriptures. Every choice God has made in revealing himself in grace and his glory has come not based on what he sees in a group or a person, but based on his desire to reveal himself, his choice to pour out his love and grace upon people and groups. For example... Though a pagan worshiper, knowing nothing of the one true living God, God chose to call Abraham to worship him. Though the youngest of all the other brothers, God chose Joseph and Judah to bless and to prosper above their brothers. Though the smallest of the nations on the earth, God chose to redeem Israel out from Egypt through the Exodus. 
reflecting on this, Deuteronomy writes to encourage Israel. And Moses says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because God loves you. Because God, why does God choose? Because he loves you. He chooses to. He, he loves you. He decides to set his affection upon you. Jeremiah's calling and service as a prophet came by God's sovereign choice. Jeremiah writes, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before Jeremiah was born, before he had done something that would cause ordinary people to say, that guy looks like a good choice for prophet. God said, no, forget all that. I am choosing before he is born. Jeremiah will be a prophet to my people. I will call him out and he will speak my words to those that are perishing. Jesus himself told his disciples in John 15, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So as Paul says in verse 5, election is according to the purpose of his will. Paul says God's choice isn't based on what we do. However, God's choice in election is based on what he has done in Christ. And so the basis for God's election is God's choice. And secondly, Christ's work. Christ's work. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that is, in Christ. Just as we were chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world, so also the Bible tells us Christ was the Savior before the foundation of the world. In his letter to the church, Peter says, You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for your sake. Peter says, Look, Christ, God knew all along Christ was going to come and be the Savior. It was, it was known before he created anything. He knew the fall was going to happen. He knew he would redeem people. He knew he would redeem you. And Christ was revealed in these last times as your substitute that salvation may come about. In Revelation 13, Jesus is called the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. It was through the ministry of Christ, His life, death, and resurrection that God saves sinners. God's election is always in Christ. No one is ever saved apart from faith in Christ, from being united to what he has done. Salvation then comes to us from the freedom of God's sovereign choice rooted in Christ's gracious work on the cross. That is the basis of election. But Paul also explains the goal of God's election. This is the second thing we want to see this morning, the goal of God's election. What is, what is God wanting to accomplish? What's his desire? Why is he elect in the first place? Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Paul then therefore says that election's goal is twofold. twofold. First, God is working for our sanctification. You know, one of the criticisms of the doctrine of election is that it leads us to sin in our lives. People will surely say, if it's God's choice, it doesn't matter what we do, we can live however we want. But the Bible doesn't teach that. 
In fact, it teaches the opposite of that. Here, Paul says God chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The end result of our election is perfection before God, holiness and blamelessness before Him. And part of God's design is not just to, to declare us righteous in Christ, but to make us righteous like Christ. And he doesn't just leave that to the end of time. He begins that process now. Even now, those that he has called out of sin, he is also cleansing from sin. As we, following God in faith, daily turn away from sin and put to death the desires we once had of our old lives, God continues to work his grace within us, making us holy and acceptable before him. You have to understand that as God's people, the moment that you confess faith in Christ... There was a definitive action whereby God lifted you out of the world and separated you from it for His purpose and His service. There is a process of sanctification, but that process is based on a specific moment when God sanctified you out of the world. And so just as the, the temple priests would take the instruments by which they would offer the sacrifices and they were purified, they were taken out of the normal use of cooking and cleaning and sanctified for the use of, of, of the worship of God in the Lord's temple. So also, you were sanctified, dear saints, out of the world. You were, you were cleansed, as it were, and set aside for God's service. God has given you a new orientation towards godliness. He does this by giving us His Spirit so we both now have both the desire and the power to say no to sin. So for the Christian, holiness is, is not an option. It's not an option. Holiness is the birthright of everyone who believes in Christ. It is evidence of His electing call to salvation. In choosing you for salvation, He has chosen not just to forgive you, but to see the effects of sin reversed so that one day you will stand before him holy and blameless like your Savior. More than that, though, God's goal in election also involves sonship. It involves sanctification, and secondly, it involves sonship. Paul says it was in love that God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Over the years, as Melinda and I have, have, have sought to, to plan out uh, to some degree our family. And we've thought about adoption. I've talked to lots of different other Christian couples about, you know, what is adoption like? What does it involve? And let me just share with you how, how it often goes. A couple begins first by filing paperwork for the process of adoption. And eventually they get the call that a child is available. They receive a picture of that child and some, some basic information and immediately... They begin to pour out their love on that child. With only a picture, the couple begins to, to pray for the child, to think of names possibly, to work on a room, filling it with clothes and toys. Does the child know any of this? No. He's totally oblivious to the, to the massive amount of affection that is being poured out upon him by someone who lives miles, miles, and if it's a foreign country, thousands of miles away. Eventually, the parents depart for the foreign country where the child is born. They hear the frightening reports of his health. He's malnourished, possibly even sick and weak. Yet the parents' resolve to love the child is only deepened. And after days of meeting legal requirements, the couple is finally able to adopt the child as their own son. In every way, him who was once not their child is now their child. And friends, that's just a, a pale shadow of the adoption that God himself commits to us. The love that God has poured out on his people, electing them to salvation and predestining them to be adopted as sons to the work of Christ. Before you were born, God purposed to love you, knowing that even after you were born and you proved yourself to be wicked and sick with sin, 
his resolve was all the more intensified as he sent his son to secure your salvation. Through the cross, God's own righteous wrath against our sin was satisfied, meeting the righteous requirements of the law. Thus, having reconciled us to himself, God continues to love us and adopt us as his own sons. And don't miss that. We are adopted as sons. Very often today, because of, of political correctness, we, 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 we neutralize and we say, well, we're, we're God's children, sons and daughters. And I, I understand what you're saying. We don't, we don't lose our gender identity when becoming Christ. But understand the language is very specific and it's, it's purposeful. Paul will say in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Not just as children, but as sons. Why is that significant? We've already said it. The son was the one who received the inheritance. A daughter never got an inheritance. So frankly, sisters in Christ, I want you to be reckoned sons as Christ because what that means is you share in the fullness of the inheritance that is ours in Christ. All of the privileges and obligations and inheritance rights of God's children you receive because God has set his affection on you and adopted you through the work of Christ on the cross. Understand the cross did not allow God to love you. It was not as if God wanted to love you, but he couldn't, so the son had to die. That's not the way the Bible presents it. The Bible presents it as the cross is an expression of God's love for you. He sent Christ because he had sent his affection on you. The son didn't have to plead your case before the father. The father planned to save sinners by the death of his own son, and the son willingly fulfilled the plan. So everyone who is saved from their sins is saved because long ago, in ages past, before time began, God knew you. He knew your first parents and he would create and Adam and Eve would sin and that you would sin. And he knew that there would be nothing in you that would cause him to look upon you with righteousness. Or nothing that would be within you that would cause you to be worthy of his affection. And yet, he chose to love you anyway. How deep the Father's love for us. He chose to set his affection on you so that while Christ was dying on the cross, you were on his heart. When we see that, when we come to grasp that as the reality of our salvation, how can we not follow Paul's example and just dissolve into praise and adoration of the God who saved us? How can we not love him deeply? How can we not long to give him every moment of our lives in utter devotion to him? For that is ultimately the intended result of our election. And this is the last thing we want to see this morning, the result of election. The result of election. One of the main objections to, to election comes in the belief that it somehow negates evangelism. How can we preach the gospel if God has already decided? Well, first consider the testimony of Paul. Though, the New Test though election is taught throughout the entirety of Scripture, Paul, probably more than any other New Testament writer, uh, emphasizes this and talks about it. And yet, what was the driving force of Paul's life? The gospel. Evangelism. I mean, he is the missionary par excellence in the book of Acts. He is going everywhere, he says, where Christ has not been proclaimed so that he might made, be made known. In 1 Corinthians 9, he gives his manifesto for ministry. He says, I'm willing to give up everything. He says, if, if, even though I'm not under the law, if I'm going to be with people, with, with Jews, and I want to share Christ with them, I'll gladly eat kosher. 
I'll gladly follow the law for them so that I will have a hearing by which they will hear the gospel. But if I go over here to Gentiles who, who have nothing to do with the law and they want to eat you know, sausage and pepperoni in their pizza, by all means, pull up the plate. I'm, I'll, 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 I'll do anything, anything except betray the law of God himself and pursuing the lost. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of my reputation. No, that's not what he says. I do it all for the sake of my vanity. No, that's not what he says. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. His life was rooted around one thing, bringing glory to God by sharing Christ with sinners. His desire was to see as many people as possible turn to faith in Christ. That's Paul's example. What about Jesus himself? Jesus both taught a lecture and also freely offered the gospel. Listen to what he says in Matthew 11. Listen closely. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see what, I mean, I, there's no verses skipped. Verses 27 through 30, all one train of thought. And what does Jesus say? Jesus in one breath says, God has chosen to whom he will pour out salvation. Nevertheless, in the next breath, what does he say? Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. In Jesus' mind, there is no, there is no conflict between election and evangelism. None at all. In fact, I would say if you look at church history, you would see one drives the other. If you name a great evangelist or missionary in church history, you will find that the basis for their mission was the doctrine of election. We say, well, how does that work? Simply this. If you, how encouraged are you going to go to be if, 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 someone, you know, if you're going to go fishing that day and you have no idea what you're going to catch? You may not catch anything. You go through line after line after line after line and nothing's biting. But what's the difference going to be if on your way to the lake someone says, guess what? The fish, the fish are hungry. The fish are biting today. The fish will go after the bait. What's that going to do to you? He's going to pick up the pace, isn't it? I mean, you're going to put the, I'm going out in the lake. I'm getting there. I'm throwing the line in. The same thing with Paul. If, if, if God tells Paul in Acts, don't leave. I have many people there whom I want to call to myself. What does that make Paul want to do? I'm going to preach the gospel and people are going to believe. Not because I'm a great preacher, but because God has ordained it. Therefore, I will go and I will preach my heart out. I will preach though it mean bodily injury. I will preach though it may mean death because God has chosen. And so I must proclaim the gospel that they might believe. It is always through the call of the gospel that God's election is made manifest. No one just walks on the street one day and is hit by a bolt of lightning and says, oh, I'm saved. God doesn't do it that way. God uses means. He says, preach about Christ and I will call people to myself. If you will simply lift up Christ, I will draw all men to me. The gospel is the means that God drawing people to himself. This is why evangelism and election are not all at odds, but go hand in hand to one another. And if we understand this, then we will understand why. Why it is that election is the praise of God's glorious grace alone. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the ultimate purpose behind God's election of sinners 
Paul says, God, God chooses to save sinners, adopting them as his sons, working to make them righteous, all to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If salvation in some way ultimately depended on us, then it would mean salvation was not entirely by God's grace. It would mean God would lose the glory he deserves. It would mean we did something to earn salvation, and so we would deserve praise. And you know, as a society, we love to give out praise, don't we? You think about the Olympic athletes that we love to, to praise, even when they, they mess up and do bad things and set bad examples, don't we? And yet, uh, while some people pull out from the endorsement deals, the others continue and say, no, we don't care, we don't care. Look at all the accomplished in the Olympics. All of, the, all of the, the labor and perseverance displayed in athletic skill and power. We love that. We give that praise. We give that honor. We give that glory. Not just the Olympics, though. Think about areas of industry and technology and engineering. You know, people like Thomas Edison, who years and years and years after they're long dead, and we're still naming awards after them. We're still putting their name on buildings and in colleges and in scholarships. Why? Because we look back and admire. We, we don't want people to forget all of the labor and intensity that caused him to produce things involving electricity that we take for granted every single day. And ultimately, frankly, if, we, if our salvation ultimately came down to us choosing Christ, then what would we do? Wouldn't we? You say, well, well, why did you choose and this person didn't? Well, because ultimately I was wiser. Well, why did you choose and this person didn't? Ultimately because I was spiritually more sensitive. Well, why did you choose and this person didn't? Because I attended church faithfully like I should. Well, well why did you choose and this person didn't? Because I had better parents. I mean, you can think of all the ways, all the ways that we would be able to point to ourselves and rob God of the glory that he deserves in salvation. That's why Paul says now. Yeah, you choose Christ, but it's because he's first chose you. The glory of God's grace goes fully to him and to no one else. From the beginning to end, God has met and prevailed over the greatest spiritual challenge ever imaginable, how to redeem wicked people from their sins and the judgment they deserve. And therefore, he alone deserves the glory of salvation. You know, church history brings, brings out the glory of this amazing work. Because on more than one occasion, a debate has gone on about exactly how God accomplished salvation. And back during the Reformation, there was a man with the name of Socinus, whom we would label him as a, as a liberal today. He argued that the Bible contradicted itself, that it presented two views of salvation and God's forgiveness. Because he couldn't reconcile how the New Testament could both say God forgives of sin freely, and yet how it was also secured through the, the costly shedding of Jesus' blood. And so he would say, he would write something like this, if, if God forgave for the satisfaction of Jesus' blood, then it means God didn't really mercifully and freely forgive sin. It means he dealt out punishment and then turned around and gave us something that was not mercy, but a gift of justice. And so this led Socinus to reject any idea that Jesus on the cross purchased forgiveness of sins. So the cross has nothing to do with salvation. And he thought he had created an unanswerable argument, but one young theologian answered him, and he said, he began like this. And this is, this is, this is my favorite way to begin an argument. You don't understand the Bible. I mean, I mean, that, I mean that's what the guy says. He says, you don't understand the Scriptures. The Scripture says at the cross, Jesus purchased for us a costly forgiveness. But then that costly forgiveness was freely bestowed on those who did not earn it or deserve it because it was simply an act of God's mercy. And see, in this way, both God's mercy and His justice meet at the cross in such a way that forgiveness is both just and costly coming from the sacrifice of His Son. 
Nevertheless, the gift is freely given by God, and so He is glorified in all. At the end of the day, that's the New Testament picture. Grace is both costly and free. The the cross of Christ proves its costliness, but election proves its freeness. Because from before the foundation of the world, before you existed, before you'd done anything wrong, if before you had chosen right or wrong, before you had trusted in Christ, God chose to set His love and affection on you. This is why Paul can say that all of this is to the praise of God's glorious grace. He alone deserves the praise and the glory for such a display of unending, unearned grace towards sinners like you and me. In his play, The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare gives us his famous line, If justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. Shakespeare understood it. If what we're looking for is justice before God, then we'll never get Christ. Because what we deserve for our actions, what is the just wage of our sin is death. Not just physical death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. But God chooses not to give us a just punishment, but instead to give us mercy, to give us grace, a glorious grace in Christ. So if you are here this morning and you have never You've never trusted in Christ. In the back of your mind, you're still thinking somehow when you stand before God in heaven that it's going to be the good that you have done, the fact that you have, that you have put your arms at length from the worst of sins. And that's why God is going to let you into heaven. Perhaps even that, that you've been a religious person, that you've, that you've attended church, that you've, you've given money to the church. And if those are the things that, that you think is going to allow you to get into heaven, then, my friend, you're going to be sorely mistaken. Because God says, even at our best, even at our best, it is still like filthy rags before God because it's tainted with sin. What we need, rather, is a Savior, one who has stood in our place, one who has taken God's wrath for us, and one who has lived a righteous life so that Christ, that God can credit that righteousness to us. And so if you were here this morning and you've never done that, you've never trusted in Christ for your Savior, then I say to you the same thing that Christ said to people. When he was alive, whosoever will, come. Come. Trust freely in the grace that that Christ offers to you as Savior. And know that if you do believe, it is only because of God's grace poured out on your life. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian this morning, then I would encourage you to reflect on these words and stand back in awe at the love that God has shown you. Understand the tremendous cost with which God's grace has come to you in salvation understand better your salvation understand uh, your salvation in Christ understand better that amazing glorious grace of election that will assure you of God's love motivate you to holy living inspire you to boldly share the gospel and humble you to give you honor and praise to the one who saved you to him be the glory the honor forever and ever amen let's pray Heavenly Father, as we try to get our minds around this admittedly difficult idea, God, an idea of your love that strikes at the very core of our prideful hearts, Father, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts, that you would help us to see why you have revealed this to us, that it is so that we would better understand the great love with which you loved us in Christ. Father, help us to see that it was never anything that we have done that caused us to be saved. But, Father, it has come simply and clearly by your loving hand. Father, may you receive the praise 
for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.